0: everybody, welcome to Bone to Pick. I'm Michael Davis coming to you today from beautiful Southern California. And I am really excited to have an opportunity to uh, showcase one of the most successful, one of the finest trombone players here in the Los Angeles area, the great Alex Isles. Alex has a, a myriad of performance and recording credits, including Joe Cocker, Prince, Harry Connick Jr., the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra, Terrence Blanchard, Henry Mancini, John John Williams, Ray Charles, just to name a few. He's toured with the late, great Maynard Ferguson and Woody Herman. He's uh, been in the orchestra for the Academy Award, the Emmy Awards, the Golden Globe Awards, the People's Choice Awards. He has hundreds of motion picture uh, soundtrack credits, uh, including The Incredibles, Star Wars, Polar Express, National Treasure, Pirates of the Caribbean, Planet of the Apes, Spider-Man, Uh, The list goes on and on and on. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about how versatile he is. He's one of the most versatile brass players anywhere in the world. And uh, witnessed by the fact that he's the principal trombone of the Long Beach Symphony. He's also performed with the Los Angeles Philharmonic as well as the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. He is a uh, trombone and jazz instructor at the California Institute of the Arts and Azusa Pacific University. Um, he's also, we have uh, go way back, uh, we were both members of the 1979 California all state Symphonic Band, and we have the record to prove it somewhere. And, uh, and more recently, I'm uh, really, really thrilled that he was uh, willing to lend his talents to a project that I did a few years back called Absolute Trombone Two, and his brilliant playing came through on that. So, so Alex, thank you so much for taking time out of thank your you. crazy busy, busy schedule, and uh, it's great
1: to see you it's again. It's great to be here and great to be with you.
0: Let's jump in. Uh, let's talk about your background. I know you're a SoCal guy, and uh, maybe talk about uh, growing up and when you know how you how you ended up on the trombone.
1: Well, it's interesting. I'm my uh, I came up playing trombone in the public schools. We had a really great public school music program in Arcadia, California, just mm-hmm. a few miles east of here. And um, when my mom went to interview the orchestra director uh, at the school to find out what instrument I was going to play. Um, the interview was very quick. I had three or four instruments that I, I think trumpet, clarinet, maybe a couple other instruments that my mom went in to say would this work for my son. And the first thing my, the orchestra director asked is, uh, tell me about your son. And my mom said, he's very tall. And then the orchestra director said, he'll play trombone. So that was it. <laughs> it, was, it was chosen just based was on chosen, that. Yeah, yeah. long arms. So, yeah. so uh, that was how I started. I played all the way through public school. I, I didn't take it too seriously. I was really active in sports and stuff when I was young. Um, by the time I got into junior high, though, I took some lessons with a guy who was in the high school, and his name is Jim Feichman. I'm still friends with him. And he uh, brought over some records one day. With uh, He brought over some J.J. Johnson records and some Irby Green records and uh, Bill Watrous records. And I had never heard anything like that before. And that day changed. That was like the fork <laughs> in the road. And I was really into it after that. So I, I started pursuing... Um, listening to music a lot more that was about thirteen years old and then i started practicing a little bit more and getting more serious about it and by the time i got out of high school i was playing a lot and um... was thinking maybe of pursuing music but i i wanted to have a little bit more of a all-around background to um... my education and my Mm -hmm. parents encouraged that too so uh... to keep my options open i decided to go to ucla and i ended up studying economics in school I had a choice of what major to have. I knew I wanted to play music, but when I looked at all the majors, uh, including music, they had a lot of upper division required courses. But I looked through the catalog, and economics had the fewest number of upper division required courses, so I could play all I wanted and be able to get through and get a degree in four years. So, mm-hmm. And it was turned out to be a really good program. I learned a lot about uh, economics and business, and I also learned quite a bit. I took a lot of English courses, and... Um, I took a writing and editing course for a while, and I did an internship for a TV production company. I had a really good experience while I was in college in things outside of music, but they were eventually related to what I did in my career quite a bit, too. So it was a really great experience. I played in the—I uh, spent a summer playing in the Disney All-American College Band out here, and that really got me excited about music. So I had some really good experiences in, in college, even though I was not a major. I took courses mm-hmm. and took theory courses and, and um, went to Aspen School of Music a couple of the summers there. And that's where I studied with Per Brevig and Ron Borer, who's another great teacher that I had some lessons with. And then by the time I got out of school, I was kind of torn what to do. And uh, I ended up working on a cruise ship for a while. And right before that, actually, I started studying with Roy Main, who who turned into my primary teacher. Um, I had weekly lessons with him. And he was a a fantastic teacher. Um, He focused mostly on the freelance community of players. And most of his students were freelance players doing shows and recording, and people like Alan Kaplan and uh, Bob Sanders, the bass trombonist, and Bob McChesney and Andy Martin. We all studied with him, so he had most of the working players at one point or another had some contact with Roy, and he was a fantastic teacher. So he really helped me get a little bit more established in little professional situations. But at the same time, I was working in the uh, yeah, I was working an insurance job for a while. I worked in a in a music publishing company I was doing all the different kinds of things right out of school but then I got a call to work on a cruise ship for three months and I did that and I learned how to play club dates and casuals and uh, that was a really great experience and started learning about Dixieland and playing all that kind of stuff and then uh, I one of my old friends from when I was on the Disney All-American College Band Dan Levine from, mm-hmm. from New York sure. he mentioned that Maynard was looking for a trombonist and so I sent in a demo tape to Steve Wiest who was leaving and he handed it to Maynard and they invited me out to do a tour with Maynard, and that was about 1985. Yeah. So that's when I started doing things professionally, and then I came back into town after that, and I had a credit. (laughs) So I was able to start working a little bit, and um, that's how I sort of got started.
0: Very cool. I I think it's always interesting, especially for guys our age at this point, that that big band experience that we had an opportunity to do is so... Vital, really, you know, to development and just playing every night and being in that kind of intense Absolutely. environment, you know, and it's having unfortunate that it's that it's uh, not yeah. there for the taking. It's anymore. it's really
1: it's really sad. I mean, there's some there's some spots where it comes up once in a while, but that idea of having to play when you don't want to—that's mm-hmm. such an important experience to have um, when you're when you've been traveling all day or you're not feeling great, but you still have to bring a, bring it to the to the performance that night. Um, I'm sure you had those nights with the buddies band and. Um, and tr- touring with the Stones, where there's, you know, there's nothing like that. And that really helps sort of solidify your, uh, goes beyond just your abilities on the instrument or your mm. musicianship. It sort of helps you develop some perseverance that you need as a professional. It's really important.
0: Absolutely. And I appreciate you uh, mentioning your background about uh, economics and the variety of things that, you know, it's, I think it's important for all young players to realize, you know, it doesn't have to be you know, I don't have to go to Eastman or Juilliard, and you know, for this this road to uh, take me where I ultimately am going to end up. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's really uh, wonderful that you yeah. share that.
1: I think I was lucky in a way because I didn't really have a path that mm-hmm. I that I could follow. Um, I for what I ended up doing, I don't know whether there was an educational formula that I could have followed to do what I'm doing. So, I mean, there, I, would have, I would have loved to have been at Eastman with you at the same time that you were there. That would have been an amazing experience um, and with so many great players who were there when you were there. Um, but, uh, but having living, living in Los Angeles and being around all the great players here and, and having that sort of that um, level of, of playing that was in my head all the time. Every time you go to a club or you watch a TV show, you would hear these players and, and, and you would know that that's the standard that you, you take to the practice room when you mm-hmm. go to play. So...
0: I wanted to kind of put a blanket over this whole thing. I mentioned in, in the intro that Alex is one of the most versatile brass players anywhere in the world, and um, he, you can see it from his uh, his resume, and you can also see it just when you're around him and you're in different playing situations. We don't get to play together that often, but when mm-hmm. we were at uh, on the faculty together at uh, – um, uh, Arhus for Aarhus. the uh, ITF, it which is a wonderful festival, uh, host over there, it was terrific. But you know, you'd be playing in a trombone, legit trombone quartet. I went to your warm up sessions in the morning, and you're you know, kind of more classically oriented. Then that night, you'd be playing in a jazz group. <laughs> and I just kind of wanted you to talk right off the bat about your approach to being so versatile. I mean, mm. you, you clearly, you, you're going to tell us later about a story with the playing with the LA Philharmonic. Maynard Ferguson's band all the the motion picture work you do um, how is that how did that evolve for you and how do you kind of look at the that the, that part of your career it's
1: interesting I think most trombone players when they're starting out especially through middle school into high school and a lot of times into college, they're doing a lot of different kinds of music. You talk to Joe Alessi, and mm-hmm. some of his fondest memories of being in high school was playing in the Monterey All-Star Jazz yeah. Band. And people don't realize or they forget that he had an experience the same as you, you and I had in a lot of ways coming up. So I think a lot of those experiences, I never grew out of it. I, I don't think I ever fully grew up into a specific kind of trombone player, whereas people started to maybe by the time they get to college or they were entering a music conservatory, they kind of had a plan. They had a, they had a real goal in mind. Um, my goals were a little bit more diffused. I took a more of a survey approach to everything, and I would always try to do what I needed to do to participate at that moment. So when I had to learn how to play, in a, play New Orleans-style Dixieland music, I, I had to learn that. That's not something that came naturally to me. I, I, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up doing it as much, but when I, I really put a lot of time into that for a short period of time so that I could learn enough songs to be able to accept a call for that. Same thing with a lot of different kinds of music. I tried to learn from the people that... That we're doing it right and be able to participate and exp- and find a way to express myself within that genre or whatever it is, but I think there's so many things about different kinds of music that overlap that people forget. I my one of my one of my pet uh, expressions of that is um, the skill sets that you need to play um, certain kinds of cl- what is considered classical or orchestral music very often will be, I'm drawing on my experience having played in jazz bands. If I'm playing Stravinsky, if I'm playing a Rite of Spring or The Firebird, or if I'm doing Bartok Miraculous Mandarin, you know, there's every bit as much rhythmically and just intensity-wise when, when you're on the bandstand of playing those pieces, it has a feeling very similar to the feeling you have in a brass section when you're playing... In a big band, it has a similar kind of ensemble expectations, and the things that you develop playing a jazz band, especially in the registers that you're in and the rhythmic kind of characteristic you have to project, you learn that. I learned that in playing in jazz bands. It was it was not playing, Bordoni etudes. I learned other things doing that, but playing Bordoni does not necessarily translate into playing Stravinsky. Mm-hmm. So it's it's important, I think, to to gain the experience in whatever musical thing you're doing. You can bring that to other places. It just because it has a, a label of being Classical or jazz that's not really it's just certain kinds of music emphasize certain qualities or certain skill sets mm-hmm. And if you can kind of develop all your skill sets together And if you listen and you're familiar with the kind of music you want to play you can work on projecting that out so I've, I've tried to use the old Duke Ellington adage of you know There's two types of music good and bad <laughs> it's, it's easier said than done and, and you can't really play the same way in one genre than you do in another there' are, there's are some things that you can 't get away with in either place, and you have to kind of learn to adapt and, and figure that out and but I always feel like i'm maybe at my best i 'm eighty percent of the player I am in that genre. I always feel like <laughs> there's always somebody that's like way better at me at that, but I 'm just trying to hang with them you know just try to hang on in some situations you know it's uh, it's pretty pretty brutal sometimes you have to really you know, the, the most you can hope for sometimes is just to be kind of, Oh yeah, he was there too. That's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you bring a lot more than uh, You were just there. That is for sure. But, uh, but you know, you said something that I think is also really key is like, and every time we've played together, you're one of the great listeners. You're always adjusting to what's going on. And I think probably that's uh, part of the key to your success. You know, uh, you're, you're, yeah. Whatever genre you're in, you're always in. Your ears are open all the time. Well,
1: thanks. I, I'm a first and foremost a a listener of music. I, I, I always feel like I, I love listening to music just as a as a listener, listener audience member, as much as playing. In certain situations, I'm. I'm, There've been times when I've been in an. Some of my most vivid musical memories have been on a bandstand or with in a recording studio with musicians that I'm playing with. But I've had some equally amazing experiences sitting in an audience and listening to music. When, when I was young, we used to go to the Eagle Rock High School, had jam sessions the last Sunday of every month that they would have after their, their jazz band would play. And uh, my friends and I would pile in the car and go over <laughs> to Eagle Rock and pay three bucks and go listen. And, and it, you never knew who was there. Very often it was like Blue Mitchell and Frank Rosalino and Shelly Mann, all these amazing players. And I, I have vivid, vivid memories of, of that experience. And I, I had no idea what they were doing when I was 14, 15 years old. But it was so great, and they were all having so much fun and Jack Sheldon would be playing trumpet sometimes, and you never knew what he was going to say next and it was just <laughs> so fun the whole the feeling of that was so impressive it impressed me so much you know it really made a big difference yeah, Very so.
0: cool that's great stuff um, let's jump in and talk about your work in the motion picture mm-hmm. industry, which I think is probably a lot of people know you from that and you, your list of credits is, is uh, beyond impressive <laughs> what is that like uh, in terms of for you, you know, I'm obviously, I'm sure from session to session it varies, but oh, yeah. but how does uh, your, your overall approach to that type of work uh, go?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, most of the time when we go to work, um, it was more so, I think, 10 or 15 years ago, but it's still the case now that we're, we're not quite sure what we're going to do. Um, they occasionally send out files ahead of time with some music, but to be honest, a lot of us don't look at that music too closely. We'll look through it fast to see if there's anything really crazy. But most of the time, the requirements for the music you know there are certain constants. you know playing with a good sound, playing, in, playing with good, good time, especially we, we play. most of the music we record is with a click track. Mm-hmm. So you have to be really good at being clear with the click track, and, and just having a, a great in- tune, good sound, good, good rhythm in, in that situation. You know that's going to be a given. you got to have make sure that you're on, on board with that. Stylistically, there's some variance and and sometimes we'll even be looking at the part and we don't know whether it's more of an orchestral kind of sound and Sometimes it might be more of a rock and roll kind of sound and it might be the same group of people in the same room But suddenly you got to draw on that skill set at that moment even though you're sitting in an orchestral section with orchestral musicians all around you and a composer that thinks he's written an orchestral score,
0: but you're playing (laughs) rock and
1: roll so you have to in order for them to be happy and to get the job done and match what's going on with the picture which is always what we're doing. Everything we do is is tied to the picture. So you have to kind of have an awareness of of that. Um, but that, that that I think is really important. We we usually walk in. Most of the trombone players we we always carry a small tenor, a big tenor, and a bass. And. For a variety of reasons, a lot of the time, if you're called to play tenor, you're going to play bass. It's just the way it works out. Well, you, so
0: even if the call doesn't go out for yeah, that, you still yeah, have all three. Just, yeah,
1: because so, sometimes, to be honest, they, they might write parts that are low. They just mm. write. They just they feel free to write C's and D's and you know lots of pedal tones, and it really does get them the sound they want. If we have four or five of us on bass harmonies. Um, so, And then very often, especially with a four-person trombone section, which is very common, that third chair is, is, is the uh, the real hairy chair. Mm-hmm. And that's the one where you're going to be going between bass and tenor a lot. And so you might have to play switch back and forth in one cue. So that's you kind of have to have the bass trombone always on your radar. It's a really important thing about studio work specifically. Now, I've got to say, I've never set out in my mind to be a studio trombonist. I always wanted to be... A trombonist and and be an, be the trombonist for that moment if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to define with students and stuff who are exploring freelance playing. Yet there are times when you have to be a trombonist where you just show up and you kind of fit in. If it's a big band section, if you're going to play third, you you've got to be able to do that. You're just a trombonist. They need that right then. If you if they need you to play some and play in a Latin band. You got to be a trombonist who can do that at the last minute. They don't. They already have. They're they're the trombonist. They have is is sick or whatever or busy. They just need a trombonist. So you have to. (laughs) If you want to be a freelance player, you got to understand that role. Then there's other times when you're the trombonist, where you're maybe the first one that they think of or whatever, and that might involve some solo playing or a specific kind of genre that you're that you've proven that you're comfortable with. But sometimes I'm a bass trombonist, Mm. and I I don't like the word double. Because I figure that I, I see that as an apology for, for less than p- better playing, and it also it, it keeps me from getting to be better on the instrument. As soon as I stopped thinking of myself as a doubler, my bass on playing got more serious, and I was able to practice it more seriously because I had just re- had to realize, okay, I'm just kind of a, a lame bass drumonist right now. I'd rather be a lame bass drumonist than say I'm a doubling bass drumonist. <laughs> so. Because I, I, I have to every time I get called to play bass drum one, I'm going to be compared to somebody who does that full time. I mean, I might be compared to Bill Reichenbach one day, you know, I, that I get called. And so I got to make sure that my my standard of bass drum playing is more than oh yeah, I kind of play bass drum mm-hmm. And so that really helped me a lot in my mind. Um, so that that's another thing too. So you have to be kind of ready to to jump into these different different things. And I I grew up playing a lot of small bore tenor and large bore tenor I, since I was in. Ninth or tenth grade, that wasn't a hard go back and forth for me. Bass trombone, was. It took me a lot longer. I was a a, a little bit of a resistant bass trombone player, <laughs> but I I love it now. I love I love playing bass trombone, and it's it's a lot of fun. And I practice it. I even used it the other day when I played on a I played a guest solo thing. Um, with a jazz band locally, and I I played one tune on bass drumone, which was really fun. I'd never—that's the first time I'd done that. Oh, cool! So that was good. And I i heard some good things about your bass drumone playing more recently well, too. I don't know about
0: that, but I yeah, yeah.
1: You heard you're playing some jazz on it. I heard about that. That was oh, good.
0: Oh boy! Wow. I won't tell Bill. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think Bill can sleep soundly at night when, when the bass trombone's in my hand. I can assure you of that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's
1: different when you, when you improvise on it. It's a very different oh, instrument man. to play on. No doubt. Different voice.
0: You know, that's a great uh, way to define it. A, sometimes you're a trombonist and the other times you're the trombonist. That's a really great way. To, I haven't heard anybody say that, mm-hmm. and I, that's a really helpful way to look at it. It's I especially
1: think. true for freelance players. I yeah, think yeah. There's times, you know, some people get upset that they're always the sub. I love it. I'm still, I'd say it's still a big percentage of my work is subbing for someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think maybe I could, that, that's the LA Phil story. Um, I, I was playing a job out in Palm Desert with a, a, a little little show orchestra um, doing a tribute, a 95th birthday tribute to Carol Channing. So we were playing all these acts and play-ons and playoffs, and we're doing this whole thing. And I got a, I got a phone call from the manager of the LA Philharmonic and, he explained that it was very sad but um jim miller's mother he's the associate principal with the la phil his mother was was very ill so he got called out of town he had to leave very very last minute so they had a concert the next day on sunday and so i came back early and um i was thrown in to play second trombone on Mahler three with the la phil after they had been preparing it all week and they're getting ready to do it on tour and the other added bonus and and uh sort of freak out part of it was that uh, Jürgen Ryan was playing principal doing his audition week with the orchestra. Um, and so he was playing the solo and playing principal, and he had to help me describe half an hour before the concert how everything worked. And uh, so, but he was great. He helped me. It made a huge difference. And he sounded amazing on the solo. It was, it was like life changing to hear him play the solo. It was really, really great. And um, so, it was, one of, it was a fantastic experience. It was one of those bucket lists I didn't even have on my bucket list, really. <laughs> but just to get that, that, that opportunity to sort of just fit in and be. And I, the b- biggest compliment is I, I knew someone in the violin section who came up to me a few days later and said, hey, I heard you were with the orchestra. I didn't even know you were there. And I said, I did my job. (laughs) (laughs) As a second trombonist, that's one of the highest compliments you can get. That's (laughs) it. Uh,
0: That is such an amazing story. And Alex was kind enough to share that before (laughs) the interview. But, Matt talk about that's the, the pinnacle of freelance uh, oh, existence yeah. and, and also the 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 scary aspect of it it's it like all of a sudden you're sitting with the LA Phil playing Mahler yeah. you know yeah. it's like it's yeah. amazing it was a lot of fun it and and fun. it speaks to uh, your experience that you can uh, deliver successfully in that arena because that's uh, m- many yeah. many many successful uh, freelance <laughs> folks can't do that uh, myself <laughs> included <actually. laughs> yeah. um, Alex let's talk a little bit about some of the other types of uh, recording work you do here in LA mm-hmm. I, it's there's no question that L.A. is the recording center mm-hmm. uh, of, of cities in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly way more recording work uh, goes on here than in New York. Mm-hmm. I suppose Nashville would be another one in a different kind of way. But, mm-hmm. but um, maybe you could talk about the other types of recording sure. work that you end up doing.
1: Yeah, um, there's, I mean, television and film are the, are the two main things that, that most of the musicians are active in if they're, if they're doing recording. But there's also, um, for instance, tomorrow we're doing a, a lot of uh, music that you would hear at a theme park. When you go on a ride, we, we record a lot of that music here uh, for Tokyo Disneyland or for Walt Disney World or any any of the other theme parks that have music, and they very often hire a big orchestra. And some of that music is the most fun to play and record. And so we have two days of that coming up tomorrow and, and Tuesday. Um, so that, that's, that's a whole avenue of, of music that a lot of people are employed doing that doing that music. They're actually real human beings playing that music when you go on a ride. Um, also, uh, other kinds of recording, there's still... Um, there's, there's, um, you know, there's live television out here to an extent. It's not quite, a, you know, in the old days when the, the old variety shows were on in the '60s and '70s. You know, Flip Wilson and and um, and um, Mike. Well, Mike Douglas was in Philadelphia, but actually all over the country, there were all these shows with live live bands, and sure. there yeah. were as many as ten or fifteen live orchestras doing TV every week in Los Angeles. It's an amazing time to think back on that, and um, when you talk to some of the older musicians about that stuff. But that's changed a lot. there's still there's still a fair amount of recording in, in other areas. There's still a little bit of jingle work that comes up. Um, we end up doing a few Super Bowl commercials here with a big with a big orchestra, but there's also a few jingle houses that still do things here. Um, so that it's, it's kind of, you know, we have had some video game work that we've done here as well. And I'm, I'm hoping that in, in the future will that more of that will be happening. Cause that's, they they love big orchestras in, in video game music. And so much of it has been, has been recorded in other places besides Los Angeles. So maybe, you know, in the future we could be, work out more of that stuff in the future. So that, um, that I'm hopeful that, especially for the next generation of players coming up, I think that'll be a big thing for them to get to do. And to build some experience, especially building experience um, doing recording, mm-hmm. it's very difficult right now for younger players who are interested in freelancing in general, because there's there's used to be a big variety of things you could do. Um, that was between sitting at home and working at Sony with Hans Zimmer. There used to be a lot of stuff in between. I, 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 I did all that stuff. I played uh, uh, Chinese funerals downtown. I worked. I wore funny clothes at theme parks. You know, I did all that stuff. There were so many different kinds of odd little jobs that you could get called for at the drop of a hat, um, sometimes that day. Um, and and so much of that experiential kind of work where you get. You know, you have to get out there and play and earn your money. You know, get paid and go home. So much of that is dried up for a lot of the younger players, and um, I see more of them creating more of their own opportunities, which is great. Mm-hmm. But still, that 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 uh, that f- fruitful work that was around for freelancers, whether it was recording or live, is is dif- it's difficult to tap into that. Um, what I'm hoping is that there will be a someday there'll be a there'll be more opportunities for the kinds of r- recording that. Younger players will be able to be involved with um, in in a you know in a big orchestra where they get that experience and be able to do it because they have to have the option to do it. It has to be here somewhere, and if people are not up and ready for that experience, um, they're not going to be trained, and and it and it'll be less. It, there'll be less opportunities, mm-hmm. and I, so I'm hoping there will be some sort of you know we've been very lucky really since Star Wars in 1977 that the orchestra was put back in people's heads again, because it was really falling out of favor. It was near as good as gone right, right. by then. So with John Williams and, and Star Wars, that that actually created a, a whole career for a lot of people, and um, we've been riding that wave for a long time. And um, to this day, it's still really great, but again, it's it's a very small group of people that that are able to do most of that work that comes in. Mm-hmm. And I uh, would like to see more opportunities for more people. That's something in the back of my mind that I've... That I that I would love to see, mm-hmm. so maybe maybe someday things will shift that direction. I'm hoping.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, let's talk about you know the LA is uh, we focus a lot on on the recording work here, but there's a very um, I guess I would use the word thriving big band scene here. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically, there has been for years and years. Yeah. Um, And now, much to us New Yorkers' chagrin, uh, the great Bob Mincer is out in Los Angeles (laughs) now, and uh, we're thrilled that he's here, of course, but we we miss him like crazy in New York, and he's my personal favorite, and Bob's still very generous and includes the New York guys on some of the projects, so uh, we sure appreciate that. But, But you've got Bob out here doing his band. Uh, Of course, Gordon Goodwin Mm -hmm. and the Big Fat Band. You've got, uh, and then historically over the years, Bill Holman and Bob Florence and Tom Kubas. So talk about that scene a little bit, if you would, because it seems like it's fairly rich. Yeah,
1: it's still still going, and there's some great younger people. Alan Chan is a great band leader. I sometimes do some stuff with him. Um, There's there's um, um, Alex Budman and. and, and Jeremy Levy, they co-lead a band that's fantastic. Mm. Dave Sloniker has a band that's out here, and Dave's wonderful. That record,
0: actually I meant to compliment you on that. He's a beautiful playing, and that's an incredible uh, record. Oh, uh, yeah,
1: Dave's wonderful, and you were in school with him too, right? Yeah, yeah, Um, But I I was very fortunate. I had uh, 15 years playing uh, second trombone on Bob Florence's band, And it was a great group of people. I really loved. It was a very family-ish kind of feeling. Is that a word? Familyish, <laughs> um, familial. There you go. That's way too family. That's not a trombone player word <laughs> at all. Um, but it was. A, it was a really great. Go in there every week and and have a wonderful experience hearing all of Bob's charts and playing through that music. And the best thing about it for me was a fifteen year um, uh, mentorship with Charlie Loper, oh, yeah. who was. To my ears, still the greatest lead trombone player I, I've mm-hmm. ever sat next to. Mm-hmm. I mean, he—he he was such. He's just got this incredible gift of of sound, phrasing, feel, and and just he could lead the band from the lead trombone chair without playing loud. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, he had plenty of power and strength when he when he would want to turn it on. But Charlie had had a way about him that I, I I've seen in a few other players, um, very few other players, I should say. And he just had this way of, of phrasing things, and everybody would go with him. You know, even the lead trumpet would go, yeah, yeah that's it. That's the... And he, just, he, he was just so easy to play with on that band. He was, it was, he was made for that lead trombone chair. Mm. And, it was, and sometimes it, he wouldn't have a lot, there wasn't a lot of solely work necessarily. There'd be a few things, but he could, whenever there was those little four bars or something to do, Charlie would just raise the band right up to the max. So I, I just really learned a lot. Playing with him, just his attitude too. He he is a very generous gentleman and and very positive person, and and always in that band was always really gracious with, the way he played, and and you know he it was great. He he was and very clear about his, the way, he'd want to have things phrased. He wouldn't say much, but he would demonstrate. Every every time you'd play, if you if you didn't hear it, you, you were not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was a that was a, I, I'd say if I'm if I'm at all a, a comfortable playing lead trombone, it's largely due to my experience sitting next to him on that wow. band
0: a lot. Very you know. cool. Yeah, yeah. I've always thought of Charlie okay. as a, and the few times I've been fortunate enough to play with him, he's just an elegant player That's and an elegant person. human being as yeah, well. He's definitely. just a, like a wonderful man. And
1: not- some people are not the way they play some people you hear them and they're they're angry players and they're super nice people or vice versa right right charlie is exactly the way he sounds that's yeah, very true elegant yeah. is a, uh, that's the that's the word I would I would describe his playing but more than any other yeah. yeah
0: yeah that's cool let's um let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your work as a as a, an educator and uh, and like I said uh going to your master classes I feel like I get so much uh-huh. out of uh, hearing uh-huh. you've got a great approach and it's very it's just, it's, it's it's very meaty, but yet focused and digestible. It's like all the things you want to get from an educator. Um, talk a little bit about your, your work here in Southern California in terms of uh, where you're teaching and uh, and mm-hmm. your interest in that side of your yeah. career.
1: Um, I started getting interested in teaching when I was in high school and, and when I was the section leader of the, the high school uh, band. And then I also conducted the pep band in school. So I, I started getting comfortable talking to people about music Early on, I wasn't—I didn't know what I was talking about, but I was—I was comfortable with the idea of it, and um, I taught through most of college. I did—I ended up teaching a lot of the students taking um, instrumental methods. You know, they okay. had to, the teachers had to learn brass instruments, so I, sure. I, I used to teach. I taught a lot of clarinet players, and when I was in, <laughs> I got really good at teaching a clarinet player how to make a trombone embouchure. That was a, so th- that little task was fun, um, and then I—I I was teaching through most of that time, and it was oh, teaching privately has always been a. Part of my life, I would say I got more focused on the idea of doing like clinics and master classes. I learned about that um, when I was on Maynard's band Mm because Maynard did a lot of those things. And each person in the band, when I joined, had a pretty good shtick, or of that they worked out, and they had things that they talked about, and they had a way of doing that. And I learned a lot from that. And just watching the way Maynard worked with kids was really interesting and very, and people loved it. You know, Mm -hmm. so I, I tried to pick up little things along the way there. And um, and I would go to a lot of I always attended a lot of master classes and stuff and I I'd go to master classes by other instruments a lot I remember one of the best master classes I ever went to was Ron Leonard the cellist giving a master class on the Bach cello suites mm. I mean you just you you hear all the stuff the trombone players talk about it and it's pretty good but then you actually hear a cellist describe that music you go oh <laughs> you know Duh. so um, but it, so it's interesting you learn learn things maybe outside your instrument but I. I started getting I I, um, I started getting pretty good because I was always a, I was a late person to improvising. I didn't really start doing that till near the end of college. I, mm. I messed around a little bit, but I was not serious about it, or even wasn't even joking around about it. I, it's just something I didn't do that much. But because I started, I think because I started fairly late, it was fresher in my mind when I was in my twenties when I encounter somebody in their twenties starting out. Mm. So. I, I, could. I, it was all fresh in my mind. I knew exactly what they were going through. Oh, yeah, I, d- I was just going through that. So mm. I think that gave me a certain advantage in a way as a teacher. A lot of jazz musicians, they go through t- 30 steps, and they don't remember those 20 steps that they went through to get to that point. They're just playing great, and they go, Well, wow, you just play. Well, they forget that they went through, maybe maybe they didn't. Maybe they just were up and running um, naturally. But I, I had to really work for everything that I did as an improviser. I didn't, I didn't have the kind of ears that some people had where they could... Your, you know, sixteen bars of a Carl Fontana solo, and write it out right away. I, you know, I'd never had those kind of ears, so I had to do everything a little bit more methodically and find my own way to 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 learn how to do it, imitating all the great players that everybody else listens to. You know, mm-hmm. so um, but that that's my approach. I, most of my approach with um, with with improvising first is trying to get younger players to delve into the idea that playing by ear is so important. Um, older players, you know, older, by I mean over seventy, um, they <laughs> learn. A lot of them learn their instrument just playing by ear, the way people learn in a garage band. You know, mm-hmm. they just—it's very raw, it's very pure. I mean, that's the way Louis Armstrong learned how to play. You know, they just play by ear, and you and you learn the songs, and you and you mess around with it. And it's it's a it's a real um, non-written out, non-theorized kind of experience. That first little foray into improvising is very simple in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. It's innocent. And I think a lot of musicians who are learning, their first encounter with improvising is a set of chord changes on a jazz band chart. And by then it's too late. You've, you, you've missed out on all the stuff that you really need to do to be able to experience that the right way. So I, I try to emphasize that a lot, especially in clinics. I try to get people to think about playing songs by ear. Which, mm-hmm. And it, it's important even if you're not going to be a jazz musician. I think that's something that Ralph Sauer does really well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not a, he would never call himself a jazz musician. But he has great ears. I, I remember subbing in the LA Philharmonic, and he had a practice mute in, and we were playing Shereh And he was playing all the other parts as they went by. He was playing... All the bassoon part, he played the clarinet part, he was just sort of with his legs crossed just kind of playing it. And I went, yeah, this guy's transcribed the whole thing. You know, he's, so it was... You know that, that, that sort of lean on me a little bit. It's like, yeah, ear play. That's really what it's... It's important. And I think a lot of musicians sort of neglect that even good ones, they, mm-hmm. they neglect that. And uh, I think it can really add a dimension to your playing, a, an, authentic, a, an authenticity to your playing when you really hear what you're going to do rather than think about it all the time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and plan it in a way. You know, it's, it's more about get your ears to the point where you can be spontaneous. It, mm-hmm. it gives you that freedom to be able to do
0: it. I think that's really important, uh, especially for classical players too. Yeah. I think the tendency is to not, you know, is to be more focused on the written page and uh, but I think the balance between those two things, you know, I mean, just like jazz, it's important for jazz oh, musicians yeah. to learn to be able to Absolutely. read well, you know. So I think, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a microcosm of your whole existence as a musician, but it's the balancing of all these elements yeah. is uh, super
1: important. And and for me as a musician, what I do, there's a huge balance between coming up with, I mean, if you're doing a, a record, uh, I've done a couple of record dates and jingles with Jerry Hay and, very often he'll have a we'll have a chart, but then he'll just say no. We're going to do this and this and this. And, blah, blah, blah. and he says you're going to play that, and he'll just dictate parts to you. And his ears, as you know, are frightening. Yes. So he kind of expects you to be on that level, and so that that you learn fast. So having a little bit of experience gives you a little bit of an advantage over someone who doesn't do that at all. So that that's you know it comes back those things sometimes those little skill sets that you pick up doing those things. And also, I think, for me as a classical tromboneist, when I started doing more ear play, you know, pure ear, just playing songs by ear and transposing them into different keys and just getting past the trombone and just getting into the musical part of it and trying to think of the instrument as just a voice for you, it, the more I did that, it's still ongoing, but the more I do that, the more confidence I have when I play written music. I, I can hear the notes that I want to play better. I can have them in my head before I play them, which is mm-hmm. so which is kind of a no-brainer but it's still something that you can get distracted from if you're thinking about okay my arm is just here and my put my slide here I don't want to you know you know I want to put my right angle right there and, you know if you start thinking about all those details and then you have to go ta <laughs> it's you're done it's passed. right, right. And if you just hear it and go for it you know that's really what Arnold Jacobs was talking about with wind and song that's to me that's the that's the takeaway there is that you just get a good breath and you have it in your head and you go for it you know that's really it it could be a complicated process to get to that point, but when you finally get up and play, that should be about all that's on your on your uh, landscape right then and there. It's just yeah. the note you're gonna play.
0: The next yeah. note. Well said. Yeah, that's mm. that's it exactly. Alex, maybe you could you were sharing some amazing uh, Dick Nash, Lloyd Elliott stories uh, before we started the interview. And I was thinking, you know, you're you're one of those guys who's who's been around now and, and you 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 know, intersected with those guys. You're you're in the prime of your career right now. You're seeing the young guys come up. Maybe talk about, and the history here is so rich, talk about the past of L.A., what's going on now, and, and maybe where you see things going in the future.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the past, maybe before I was involved and maybe when I was just a, a, a student and an observer of the scene, um, the trombone community in general was was pretty tight, and there was a lot of, there were little, people were working certain segments, you know, there were people who did more live music of a certain kind, maybe people did more record records, you know, records were a huge part of the business out here in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and a lot of players, that's, all, that's really all they did for a while, and then there was television, which included live TV and recording, and um, film. And I, I, I think the a lot of players sort of went between all of them because they, they realized that to be you know one thing could go another thing stays and so it, it was smart to be to have a have some involvement with all those things. Um, certain skill sets were emphasized for obvious reasons like in records most of the time the players were comfortable doing, Big band and jazz, and, and then rock and roll. There were some really great record players, you know, record recording type players in the 40s and 50s that had a hard time making the transition to rock and roll and playing 60-foot mm, rhythms. Right, right. Lou McCreary was one of the few that actually made that transition beautifully and right, had right. no problem hanging with the what was then the younger players playing rock and roll. And uh, he set a great standard for the person who's a versatile trombonist. being almost, you couldn't tell what his main instrument was: bass or tenor. He was exactly even on both instruments. Remarkable, wow, um, yeah, remarkable person. Anyway, um, but at that community of, of trombonists—you know—that was the period that produced the all my friends' Are trombone players' record in the in the mid to late '60s. That was the period that did the the Trombones Incorporated uh, right, record right. with uh, with Dick Nash uh, and Frank, Frank Crescenzo and all those guys and Marty Page, Marty, charts, Marty Page, that's charts, that's yeah, yeah, it was just fantastic and. Um, so that, there was a lot of activity and, and stuff those guys were doing and, and a lot of great playing. There was also, you know, J.J. was here for a while in, this, in the 70s and 80s. Um, we, had, we had J.J., and I think Rossellino and Watchers were all in town here for a while. That was a pretty amazing time. Yeah, you could go out and hear those guys a little bit. So that was the trombone scene here, jazzwise, and then Al Sauer, of course, principal of the L.A. Philharmonic, and and all the great studio trombonists that were around. It was a real vital time, and, it, and there was a lot for people to do. As work started to concentrate a little bit more, and te- because of budgets and technology, there was a real cut back on film. I mean, on um, on TV and records especially. So. A lot of people who were very active became very inactive. Mm. And that was a tough transition for a lot of people to make. Some of the people made the transition really well. I think Bill Reichenbach's one of the people that made the transition perfectly from records into film. Mm-hmm. He's one of the few of that, of that era. Um, he has a background that lended itself to it more than some of the other players of other instruments, especially in that time. Um, that's about the time I came into things. This was the time when, when I started doing my first work that I was doing um, in recording came as a result partially of the fact that I took an audition and I made the finals with the Pacific Symphony. I, I was complete beginner's luck. I hadn't touched an excerpt for a long time and I, I practiced really hard but I wasn't nervous, I didn't care it was no, I had no interest in the job necessarily I just wanted to try an audition so that I could, if I had students I'd know what it was like and I didn't win I, Mike Hoffman is a great Plays principal at the Pacific Symphony now, he, he won the job but I started subbing as a result of that and so that was when it word was this trombone player played with woody and and maynard w- was subbing in the in the pacific symphony so that sort of word got around a little bit so i started developing a reputation as as having this dual thing and that's when i started doing cartoons with uh, warner brothers subbing for either charlie loper or alan kaplan on the warner brothers cartoons like pinky in the brain and, and uh, animaniacs and it was fun and that music was right up my alley because it was, it would change gears at, in four bars. You'd be going playing William Till Overture, and then go right into a Benny Goodman tune, and then, you know. So it was, <laughs> right. and it was crazy and really fast music to play. A lot of technical things, and it's like playing the circus sometimes. It was so fun, and we and we had a really nice feeling with that orchestra too. It was a good, good. Even though I was a sub, I felt like a part of a group. It was like a band, you know. Really a lot of fun. So that that's when I first started doing studio work, and that that was in the mid to late '80s, late '80s. And then things started changing again. Uh, I would say when when the, orche- when the orchestral thing really became important, um, um, the, the, the demand on players was was definitely to have more of a big trombone sound, large tenor trombone kind of sound mm-hmm. that became more the emphasis. So a lot of trombonists that had not had much orchestral experience, for whatever reason, I think sometimes kind of questionable reasons, they they were not getting the calls. I, I you know there were a lot of players who were great at, at doing studio work but b- because they didn't have that association that I just kind of lucked into in a lot of ways <laughs> because I just wanted to audition for that orchestra that got me going hmm. and so I started to do a little bit more of that orchestra thing and then in 2001 I, I decided to get a little more serious I said if this is really going to be something that I need to concentrate on I, I want to try and do something that will give me a little kick in the pants and that's when I went to the Joe Alessi seminar in 2001 which really changed everything I did um, as far as playing the large-bore tenor, especially. But I also, I found at that time, and I've never really talked about this much, but if there's that moment where you kind of feel like you're developing your own voice, that's when it happened, was in in, in that year. Because I I found, like, I I discovered that I could actually express myself in this kind of music and be able to have my identity as a a jazz trombone must not necessarily be compromised. But as as an overall player, I felt like all my playing became much more solidified, he gave me about ten or fifteen things to work on, and over the course of the next ten years, that's what I did. I just really mm. worked on those things, and it's ongoing. Wow! Um, so he really—that was a really great experience for me. And also, the players who were there with me are some of the best. They've all gone on to do really well, and they were all younger. I was—I just turned forty when I went to that. And here are these guys who are in their mid-20s, either right out of school or they'd just gotten their first gig or they wanted to go up to the next level, and they were hungry, man. These guys were practicing hard and real enthusiastic and super positive, and they treated me just the same way, you know. And uh, I, I really appreciated that. I got my my butt kicked really in a healthy <laughs> way, which is just what I need, you know, a little midlife moment there. <laughs> and it was really a great experience for me. And um, I, I, I'm very grateful to Joe for how he handled me, because I was kind of a different person for that seminar. I was older and I had sort of this weird commercial background, And but he was very accepting and really treated me without, you know, he didn't treat me specially at all, he just mm-hmm. went right at me, you know, all my weaknesses, <laughs> he jumped right on him. I was like, okay, that's what I'm here. So it was really good for me and that, that helped, it was, it was that time that I, that's when I won the job at the Long Beach Symphony. So cool. that was, it was right after that, it was, uh-huh. it was perfect timing, so.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Where do you see yourself uh, going? One of the things I've always thought about Los Angeles is very cool. Is that you know I see players in their seventies and even eighties, maybe, mm-hmm. that are still working, and it's a town that mm-hmm. supports players as they uh, you know and they value the experience mm-hmm. that older players bring yeah. to the table. Um, that said, you're a long way from that mm-hmm. uh, period of, of your life, but yeah. over you've done a lot in terms of. Commissioning works for trombone, uh, premiering works as a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're doing so much for ed- education in terms of uh, trombone. Um, what are your goals and outlook for the the next yeah, twenty, thirty years? boy, <laughs> ten years. Yeah, t- tomorrow. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tomorrow.
1: Look, ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's tricky. I'm, I'm I heard John Williams talk about this. He, he was a, he did a little lecture, and um, he's a fascinating person. He's, very smart person, and somebody asked, asked him uh, you know, do you have any advice for young composers? And he said, well, first of all, I'm, I, I'm not really the person to give you advice because I'm much older than you, first of all. Your world is very different than the world I entered. I mean, you can't even compare it. The other thing is, even if we were the same age, I would not have been able to tell you when I was in my 20s and 30s what it is that I wanted to do. So I couldn't really set a goal. And he said, and that was the best decision I ever made. He said, if I'd set this, what I'm doing now, as the goal, I don't think I would have gotten there. Mm. There was no delineated criteria of things that I needed to do to get here. I found this path here, and it, and I couldn't set out for it. It was purely just each job was the most important thing to me. Each, each thing that I had in front of me, that's what I gave all my attention to. I didn't think about where it was leading. I didn't think about... I want to work for this director. I didn't think about I want to make this much money. I didn't think about any of those things. All I did is do the best work I could every time I got an opportunity. And he said that never changed. That was something that I, I started doing, and every time that's all I tried to do. I, I never tried to be necessarily um, make an innovative or necessarily anything like that, although I, I do like experimenting and trying different things. You know, He, he was a great answer. I, I mm-hmm. wish I could say it as succinctly as he did. But um, that left an impression on me, and I realized, yeah, that's kind of what my dad told me when I was younger. That's a good. He, he was my dad was great. He, my mom and dad both were, were never like, you know, keep your options open, keep your options open. They, they encouraged me not to declare my major till the last minute mm. in college. They said, just take all the classes you want, find out what you like, find out what you don't like. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just as important to find out the things you don't like. So, um, the, for as far as for me for the future, I, I would love to continue on playing. I know that everybody has a limited time that they can do studio work, for instance, because, you know, the composers and, and the people that hire get younger and younger. And they have their friends they want to hire. And I, I, I've been very fortunate that, I, that I've been able to fit in pretty well so far with people who are older than me and younger than me. And I don't see age as, a, as an issue. If somebody plays, they play. Mm-hmm. And I, if somebody's young coming up and doesn't have the experience, but they can play they're 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 okay for the job it's, sure. it would be nice yeah. to to offer it first to somebody who who's not who is is experienced in sitting at home obviously but i, I still feel like th- that there's there's a there's a, a opportunities to make music and i'm more interested again i'm not so concerned about whether i'm doing studio work whether i'm playing live i i love playing music and sharing music with people it might not even involve playing it might be more teaching it might be just working as an arts advocate of some sort. I mean, I could, I could imagine myself doing that if I couldn't play, if I got hit in the mouth or whatever. Um, it, I, I could imagine doing other things within the music world that I, I, I could see being rewarding. Um, and, and so I, I'm not especially picky uh, about those sorts of things. I love teaching, and I love sharing music and turning people on to the music if they haven't been. You know, it's so, you know that feeling when you get a trombone player, maybe a young kid who's just kind of into it, and you play them a record, or you just show them something on the horn, and they just light up. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a great feeling. I mean, that's something a lot of people um, underestimate and they forget about themselves. You know, there was something that got you. That was a piece of advice. I took some lessons with Bill Green, who was a great woodwind player in Los Angeles. And he, he had, like, why would I take a lessons with a woodwind player? Well, he really helped a lead trumpet player, a friend of mine, like totally change this guy. Mm. And we were like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm studying with Bill Green. What is he doing? Take a lesson with him. So I did. I took a lesson with him, and he was fantastic. He made no apologies. He said, let's play Donnelly. What? First thing out of the horn. Out of the, just put the horn, let's play Donnelly. He's all, maybe you should think about being able to play that right out of the case. You know, it's like,
0: Wow. a good, okay, yeah. right, hey. of course.
1: And then he, 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 one thing he also said, I was just starting to work a little bit when, when I took lessons with him, and he said, there's one thing I want to tell you. You're starting to do some work around town. That's great. But one thing I want to tell you. Is no matter, as long as you're going to be a professional, never forget what it was that drew you to that instrument. Mm. And every day do something that puts you back in touch with it.
0: Mm.
1: That was so, I was like, oh, that's a good idea. Like 10, 15, 20 years later, every few years, I go, that's so important. Because when I look around at, at some of my colleagues, and especially people who are having struggling with whatever it is in their life or they're playing, very often... The thing that gets them out of it is if they just maybe decide to put a little group together and just mm-hmm. play somewhere mm-hmm. or put together a chamber music thing at their house. Whatever it is, do something. Forget about the money. Forget about all the, all the professional part of it. Just make some music with some people. And, and it's so simple, and it doesn't have to be anything earth-shattering or innovative or, or brand new and special. Just what, what was it that turned you on to music at first? And if you can somehow get a little bit of taste of that every day, uh, it's so healthy, and and that was that was one of the best pieces of advice of, of advice I ever got from a teacher, and um, I I've, I found that that has helped me so many times when I've been sort of starting to get that burnout, jaded, <laughs> <you> know, thing, <laughs> which I embrace now fully. Uh, that's now that I'm, you know as soon as I'm getting closer to sixty, you know, jaded, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna live that.
0: I'm gonna be <laughs> yeah, you are not jaded. <laughs> Come to New York. I'll show you Jaden. <laughs> well, all kidding aside, that's some great advice. And I think mm-hmm. it's great for any age, you know, particularly for younger players, too, yeah. who are, you know, uh, maybe having a hard time finding a slot for themselves in this situation. Just, tr- you know, play, do yeah. stuff that's that maybe attracted you to be music and in your instrument mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah. Well, Alex, as we kind of wind down here tonight, I wanted to uh, give you an opportunity. You've had such an incredible career and varied uh, things that have happened to you. I, I love the Mahler 3 story. That's amazing. <laughs> but I know you've got a couple other ones, and I wanted to give you a chance just to uh, sure. share a couple of your favorite uh, stories sure. that have happened to you in your
1: career. Well, a couple of my favorite stories I probably can't say. But, <laughs> um, and uh, Wayne Bergeron knows those really <laughs> well. Anyway, Um uh, one thing. This involved Andy Martin. We were doing a, um, a movie with um, Lalo Schifrin. who was the composer. It was a movie called After the Sunset with Selma Hayek and uh, who else was in it? I think uh, Woody Harrelson. Anyway, it was a um, it was a sort of a romantic uh, action film, and I think Woody Harrelson was a bad guy, and so they were chasing Woody Harrelson through the either Jamaica or West Indies or somewhere. But they had one of those Jamaican bands, you know those those guys with the pith helmets, right? And the and the, the I don't think they're wearing they're wearing white shorts, you know those bands. And they actually recorded those guys, and they recorded the band, and um and it's kind of a rough style, right? You know they're kind of played pretty rough, compared to like you know the Eastman Wind Ensemble, you know they're not that. <laughs> so it's kind of a rough sound, and, and they were chasing Woody Harrelson through this band. He was kind of hide hiding in the in the trumpet section, he's hiding in the trombone section, he's hiding, and they realized that it wasn't. For the point, for the perspective of the film, they wanted it to sound like you were there with him. So they wanted to emphasize some of the sounds as if it would be played right, like you're Woody Harrelson, you're in the band, and you're. So there's this one point where these two trombones are playing right next to him. So they wanted to record wild with the picture, two trombones playing the music that these guys were playing. So they had music for us. So they kept Andy and me afterwards. So we're we're playing and. Um, we're playing the part, and they go, you know, guys, it's, it's sounding a little too pristine. It's, it's, it's sounding too correct. You know, you guys are playing the way you play it, but it's just, it's, it's right, but it's just time Okay, so we start playing. So why don't we move back away from the mics? We'll play louder. So we play louder. So it's still not, no, it's still not quite right. Why don't you come and listen? So we listen to this thing, and these guys, when you're, you know, if you're up close to, to them, you can imagine the sound would be pretty, pretty brash. So we said, okay, we'll try it. So we go in there, and we start playing. And and they said, no, it still sounds a little too coordinated. So Andy and I look at each other. So we flip our horns around and play left-handed. And it's st- we're playing left-handed now, and it's a little rough now. And they said, it's getting close. So what I did is I played off the side of my mouth and played this. And Andy did sort of the same thing. And we're now we're laughing. We could hardly play. We're laughing so hard. And they went, that's it. <laughs> so... It was completely like everything wrong, and we just. Said, when I turned to Annie, I think I said something like, "What would Roy Maine say right now, <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> teacher?" Well, well, that's yeah. the polar opposite of the Mahler Three story, <laughs> exactly. but, uh, but equally good. That's Sometimes the, you get paid to sound bad. Th- that's a that's a, f- <laughs> doing what the job requires. That's yeah. the uh, the awesome thing. Well, listen, Alex, it's been great to spend uh, some time with you yeah. tonight talking about your incredible career. And I, th- I know I speak for the rest of the trombone world. We look forward to seeing uh, all the adventures of Alex Isles in the future <laughs> okay. and uh, all the contributions that you're going to be making and continue to make. And uh, we're all yeah. very grateful for your work, and uh, yeah. especially yeah. for coming down tonight. So, So great to see you as always. Pleasure. All Pleasure right. Me. All right. We will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick. <laughs>